Thank you for listening to Truth in Life, a concise Christian belief series. This class was taught on a Sunday morning at Christ the Word Church because we believe that God's Word is truth and that His truth should shape our lives. For more information on our church, visit ChristTheWord.com. Let's, uh, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this beautiful day you've given us. We ask that you will be here in our midst. Give us your Holy Spirit. Teach us, speak to us through your word and through the truth that we learn about you. And bless us this day. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are, this is Team Ephesus, right? All right. Last session, you've been through everything. Almost. Uh, we are today looking at attributes of God. That'll be the theme for all of our classes. And uh, just to give you a little rundown of what we'll look at so you see where we're going to go. We're going to start today with God's love for mankind. And uh, next will be the, God's grace to mankind. What you will see as we go through is we're building. So we start with a, one of the biggest, broadest areas and topics thoughts about who God is, and we kind of unpack it further down and get into more difficult things as we go. So we move from grace to God's righteousness to God's holy anger, God's holiness, and then we'll end with the problem of evil. So for me, the class has been, it just kind of keeps building. It, it, it's, uh, it gets uh, more and more exciting as you go through because it gets more dynamic with what you're dealing with. <laughs> Some of the harder things about God's attributes. Anyway, so today we are starting with God's love for mankind. And let me ask you, um, as we say attributes, define that for me, if you will. Don't stare at me, <laughs> or don't look down either. <laughs> What, what's an attribute? How it, I would say it's who God is, that's for me. It is who he is. You might say it's his character, it's things like this, but it's more than just the study of attributes are, it, we disconnect attributes about God from who he is. We act like the attributes are something that come from outside. Oh, he wants you to be holy, or he wants, he brings the law, we'll look at that some at some point. And, it's, he just made that stuff up because it's good for us, but it's not. It's not that. It's, it's, it's who God is. It's his essence. So probably the biggest, greatest attribute is his love. And so his love for mankind, and I'm going to say his love for all mankind, which today, well, all the classes, the way I work this class is I kind of say a doctrinal truth because this whole series is on truths about God. So I make a statement, and that'll be at the top usually, or sometimes I'll have some stuff that I read. Then all we do is simply, you guys will read the text. And so it's make a truth, a statement of God's truth, and let the scripture unpack it. So I, it's more of going on a ride, and I, I really like the effect of being washed over with the scripture. And when you start stacking it all together like we will, you'll see how kind of how that works. It works pretty well to get you excited and also to have the Word of God teaching us. So we'll get started here. God's Trinitarian love. This is the height of God's love. 
and I, it's Trinitarian. And I'm just going to say, oh, when we read the scriptures, by the way, they'll be in white. You'll know. You'll get it real quick. But we will start when we read the scriptures right here. And we go back and forth. Well, I guess maybe, I don't know. You make it up. We go back and forth. If you don't want to read, that's fine. Just tap the person next to you. They can read. Okay? Um, so God's Trinitarian love. Tell me about it. What do you think when you say God's Trinitarian love? All three persons love us. All three persons love us. That would be true. You guys are almost always right. What, what else? What do you think of? Perfect, that's it. There's perfect love. There is perfect love in the Trinity, and God is bringing us into that. He is, his Trinitarian love is complete. His Trinitarian love is not lacking some part of love. So he had to create man because he was lacking something, you know? So he created, no. His Trinitarian love was complete. Not lacking anything, what he did was he opened up a way to bring man into his Trinitarian love. So that's a doctrinal thing. He wasn't lacking something. So now this is how it'll work. His Trinitarian love's complete. We start reading and move around. Can you see that? Okay. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So God is love, and we see the Trinity at work all in that text. I, Jesus, in them, Holy Spirit, and you, Father, in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. So Jesus is speaking, and he's just he's speaking to about his people. I'm in them. This is from the, the prayer to God. I'm in them through the Holy Spirit. You're in me. Basically, I'm showing them your love. Let's go to Jordan, so we'll go bounce over and then back and forth. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. So th there's a purpose. He wants us to know him, and he wants us, he wants to be in us. So God's love is completely satisfied in himself. His love is pure perfect and united in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Brings us to himself and shares his infinite love with us. He created us to be objects of affection to love us. So this is where it starts to get a little more exciting. He created us to be his objects of affection. Now, he didn't just create us and didn't, doesn't just love us. This is where if there's an effect on this class from going through today's session, what I want to see is an expansion of our thinking about how much God loves everyone. Okay? The believer is united in God and surrounded by his Trinitarian love. 
So God loves mankind. He sent Christ to save the world. Did he send Christ to save the world? Did he? <laughs> Simple answer, yes or no? <laughs> Didn't ask that. I said yes or no. Did he? Yes, he did, of course. The scripture tells us that. <laughs> okay, yeah. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The next day, he, John, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So here we have, we have John proclaiming, here he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, is this a class on election? You, no, it's a class on attributes of God. <laughs> Okay, so I, I understand, you know, in your head, you try to start lining all these things up. We'll say things about that, and especially as we unpack it over the weeks, we're going to see how election is playing into this. But this isn't a class on election. This is a class about who God is and what he's done. And that's why I'm letting the scripture make the statements, because we're exploring who God is. I, Jesus, did not come to judge the world, but... To save the world. Jesus came to save the world. So God loves his enemies. Again, I'm stating the truth. God loves his enemies. Are you capable of loving and hating a person even in the same, I, I don't like my question, in, in the same, at the same time? Are you, uh, an individual created in God's image, capable of loving and hating even the same person? Uh, would you say in general, yes? I'd say yes. We're made in God's image. We're going to get to a class where we talk about God doing that a lot. We're going to focus on that. But we tend to think, well, God is love. He can't hate and love at the same time. Oh, it's okay for us to do that. But God being the highest form of love can't possibly do that. And that's really not true at all. God does both. And so we'll start to see some of this even in the text with God loving his enemies here. But I, Jesus, say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So it says, the definition here at least, of the heavenly Father being perfect is loving his enemies. He's calling us to love our enemies so we can be perfect like him. So he's being clear that he is first loving the enemies. Right? Do you agree with that? Anyone want to argue that? <laughs> the, 
Those who do not believe are condemned already. Okay, this is more the setup because we've got to get it, our heads screwed on straight. Uh, everyone is already condemned. There isn't anybody God initially before they come believers. Everybody is condemned. We're all enemies of God. There's not a, oh, well, I'm chosen. You know, God chose me. No, he may be doing that, has done that. And yet, he, we, we were still hated by him. And he loved us way back. And we were hated by him. So we see some of that wrapped up. But the point is, is everyone in the whole world I'm trying to put us all in the same boat, that's all. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. I am not praying for the world but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Okay, so a little differentiation there. Again, back to the prayer in John. He's loving the world, he's come to save the world, but he's not. There seems to be maybe a degree of love, maybe something different, because he's not praying for everybody, but he wants everybody to come to him. Believers before faith are under the real wrath of God. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So... This is about believers. We were once this, and we were under his wrath. Unbelievers now, kind of flipping it, before judgment experience the real love of God. Well, how do they experience the real love of God? We want to state, how does an unbeliever experience God's love? Yeah. What's that? Common grace, we're going to get to that in a class. They were created. They were created. They haven't died yet. They haven't died yet. <laughs> and that's very important. They haven't died yet. Is, is that the only way? Lots of ways. You told us earlier that the rain falls on them just yeah. like it falls on them. Yeah. They get blessing. The whole world, think of the enemies of God, uh, which is the whole world apart from those who are currently saved, and every day blessing, every day blessing. The, the, the love of God, he is loving them. They are hating God, but he is loving them and giving and blessing and making them happy, giving them good things, giving them life and breath and all these things, and even more so, giving them time, time to repent. 
the judgment that's in that word, is that the final judgment at the end? I don't know. Oh, okay. Before judgment, yeah. Yes. <laughs> I have to look at it. All right. Or do you presume of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So, for unbelievers, I'm pouring out love on you. That's what that's saying. I'm pouring out my love on you. Your whole life to give you time to repent, but for those who won't turn because of your heart and penitent heart. So that's where election starts to come in, which is something different than God giving love. God is giving love, and election is something beyond that. So, God loves you. Is that a good statement for the Christian to make. In general, would you say that that's a good statement to make? Some Calvinists hesitate to say to unbelievers, God loves you. They feel it can only rightly be said to the elect. What say you? Okay, do you say to an unbeliever, someone shaking their fist at God in any arena, God loves you? Is that a right thing to say to an unbeliever? We have a yes. Well, we read the scripture. What? It said God loves his enemies. Hey. <laughs> well, so I guess you're saying yes. But does it make you uncomfortable? The thought of it. I mean, there, there is a, oh, he's an enemy. He's hating God. He's shaking his fist at him. And it, I'll say, it's right to say God loves you. He's given you time to repent. He's given you life. He's given you, he's blessed. It is true to say God, lo he's loving you right now as you're shaking his, your fist at him. And to make it a little more palatable, would you say it to a young child? You would say it to a young child. You don't say to your, well, you know, I don't think you've come to know Jesus yet. I can't tell you, God, we can't sing Jesus loves me, you know, because that would be, you know, come on, is that real? No, of course it's right to say this, but Calvinists get caught up in this kind of nonsense, and it's because they don't understand the expanse of God's love. They bring it all down to, the, to election, which is an extension even beyond of God's love into another realm. Remember, God created mankind in perfect loving relationship to him. It's mankind who rejected his love. And you can't look at a sinner and say, at a sinner and say, why did God not love him? And this is what we're tempted to do or people will say, or will look at some. Why did God not love him? He does love him. And he did by offering his son to him and provides life, breath, and time to repent. So God 
actively is loving all mankind at this moment. That's, you know, God is love. He is loving all creation. It's us, or it's creation who said, no, I won't take that love. I hate you. <laughs> so God loves his people. And this is getting a little different here. A little, I'm just kind of keep unpacking different categories of truths on God's love. If you haven't figured that out yet, it may make sense to you, may not. I didn't give you handouts, right? So how many here like handouts in advance? Of course. But I'm a control freak. <laughs> and I, uh, and I don't want you to see where this is going or looking ahead. Or, okay, God, loves, God loves his people. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So God, in the love of his people, particular people, He's choosing them to be a treasured possession. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. Ah, so it was because of all the goodness in you, or it was because, I don't know, he looked into the few. No, it wasn't because of anything. He, he actually points out that you were the fewest of all peoples. Now, I mean, if you went back to Abraham, how... The, you know, you'd say, the one who's chosen. You know, all the nations, all God's people are going to come out of Abraham. You could go to there. Uh, how many people were there then? <laughs> what nation was it he was choosing? He was choosing the nation of Abraham. <laughs> how many people was that at that time? So we're, we're talking fewest. God was not looking for an established country with some sort of strength and might that he would go and, oh, now this will be, there's a pretty good, no, he's like, I'll start with this one little person and I'm going to yank him out and I'm going to love him. I'm going to choose him and pull him out. Uh, back to God loves unbelievers. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven in fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And those who disbelieve die for their own sins. They don't die because God didn't love them. They die for their sins. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? So, this is love. God himself who will pour out his wrath, has no pleasure in the death of any wicked. Rather, he wished they would turn. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? So here he's even talking to the house of Israel, but he's, he's calling them back. Turn back. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. We're going to find out when we get to things like God is righteous and God is holy, there has to be the death of the wicked. <laughs> but 
he has no pleasure in it. That's because of his holiness and things like that. So that's what this class, we're going to unpack each one of those areas. No pleasure in it, though. And we should think the same way and be the same way. We don't have pleasure even when the wicked person who, who God judges, and maybe you're thankful that, thankful that he has brought about an accounting of a person, but we aren't celebrating you know, the death of, of a person. God isn't. It's tragedy, even then, even if it was a wicked person. God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. All right, there's one, guys. We want to argue about God wanting all people. I mean, this is about as short and clear and succinct as you can get, right? God desires all people to be saved. Now, you're saying, I know where you're saying the same thing. Yeah, but then why didn't he just, and then you go, oh, who are you, you know, to get into God's mind? And we are going to explore that a little bit, but you won't be satisfied because you can't get into God's mind. But we do want to say, this is God, and this is the love of God, and this is how big God's love is. So we want to grasp that this is true. He desires all people to be saved, and so should you toward every wicked person, toward every enemy. Shouldn't be desired just that God's judge. Now, you can pray rightly for God to save. You can pray rightly for God to hold people to account. But our desire should be that they turn and be saved. But that kind of supports free will, doesn't it? Supports free will? Well, yeah, there might be some sort of something like that. We'll find that out, too. I don't know if we do that in this class or not. <laughs> but I don't, there's a truth in that. A, a truth has to fit into all the other stuff. All right. Those who disbelieve die for their own sins. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I mean, there it is again. They, they die, but he's not wishing that any should perish. This is God's heart. So, is God's opportunity as given in the gospel for his love and salvation sincere and real, even to the non-elect? <laughs> yeah, they do. Uh, is it is his is his uh, opportunity sincere and real, or would you say God is not sincere and not real in his statements? I mean, if you want. To Put it a little harder, or, and so I, you know, how so? I ask, assuming that you've answered correctly. All right, it's sincere and real. If anyone believes in Jesus as Savior, they will be saved. The promise applies to all mankind. It's not just potential to some. 
This isn't a class on election. You want it to be, <laughs> but the promise is real to all and should be, these promises of God's salvation should go to all. And it's sincere to all. Now, can a dead man do anything? And that election has to do with death and life more so than the will, which we're going to get to, I think. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Promise. God's saving love. All mankind is sinful. God is perfect in holiness. No man can be with God without also being made perfect in obedience and holiness. So God's saving love. We do move a little more the direction of, is this what happens with the will? But let's look. Old Testament, on God's saving love, um, the promises and God's promises to save are all through the Old Testament. I've grabbed a couple. There could be hundreds pulled out of the Old Testament. You would say, people were relying on the promise of God for something future. In the New Testament, we're going to get to some of those quotes. People in the New Testament are relying on the same things, but they have more revelation as they look back to Christ. So looking forward to Christ. Old Testament believers look forward in faith for God to send the promised Messiah, Savior Christ. And here we go. This is like 700 to 750 years before Jesus. You know the text, most likely, but it's amazing. The descriptions. Go ahead. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So, understanding and seeing, although veiled and dark, but still seeing, the, the iniquity of Saul is going to be laid on the Lord himself. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So, as we look at these texts, there's a clarity about what God's going to do, and people are being saved in the Old Testament, experiencing God's love through the promise. Same salvation. They're looking to Christ. They're looking for a God who's going to do this, who's going to bear their sins, who's going to make them holy. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. So here, this is a thousand years before. This is a Psalm of David. David quotes this Psalm, quotes the start of this Psalm. Anybody know where or when? When, wait, Jesus, did I say David? Well, you're supposed to just fill in because... 
I'm known to do that. Uh, on the cross, what's he say? So the desperate cry at the heart of love and promise, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he takes on the sins and there's, who can explain? But a separation from the Father not experienced. And if you know the Psalm though, it starts with the Christ. So when Jesus is crying this out, you think of it as um, it is desperate. Why have you forsaken me? But he's quoting the psalm, and the psalm describes his crucifixion, Psalm 22, and it ends it, all throughout, but especially it ends very strongly with God bringing about, it, death can't hold him down, God bringing about salvation through him. So Christ even as he's crying that out, is remembering and hoping in God. So these are types of things, you know, you're in the Old Testament, you're looking forward, Christ is going to do this, and we're going to be blessed for it. In the New Testament, uh, we look backwards. I, the key is it promises both ways. It it's promises that God will save both ways. It's the same type of salvation. It's not a different salvation. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Or while we were enemy, his enemies, he died for us. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So the maximum of love is God himself laying down his own life so that we could be part of his love. God's love never fails. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So he's already done everything for us. Won't, won't he give us everything? He's already given us himself, his own son, the most cherished possession, his most cherished. He's given himself and he says, isn't he going to give you everything you need? So this is the extent of his love. And believers are to imitate God's love. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So this is our call. It's not to just to enjoy God's love. It's to be the servant of all. It's to lay our life down, 
our selfishness, our everything we want, and, and to serve God, to serve each other. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that the one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. And God's love reaches back to eternity. Um, he created us to be his people, the objects of his love, and to know his love. So, again, I, many have maybe considered this, but he loved us. He didn't just love us, like, oh, we're there, now he loved he created us to be the object of his love. So if you know the Lord, Jesus Christ, he created you to be the object of his love, to pour his love into you. That was the purpose. Now, you may have ran this way and ran that way, away from God, but if you're his, he created you for this type of love. And he was mindful of this before creation. Because it was before he created you. He's like, okay, these vessels I'm going to create for this person, for purpose, and these for other purpose. He prepared salvation for us before anything was created, and it was through his son, Jesus Christ. Even before creation. Jesus Christ, who has sacrificed before the foundations. God gave us everything, complete sacrifice for his love for us, in his Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now that's pretty exciting. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, which is before creation. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Predestined us according to his will. So, God's love is sovereign and controlling. Open theists and Arminians wrongly believe that God's love never controls people. <laughs> they wrongly believe that God only acts to persuade people to love God. They believe that God respects human autonomous freedoms, like autonomous as in just floating out there in a vacuum. There's no pressure any direction. There's no influence any direction. We're just kind of, everything's floating around and you can just have free will. But God's love does certainly coerce some people. <laughs> okay, should make, you know, feel a little uncomfortable there. <laughs> God's love is sovereign and controlling. All right, we're running out of time. Read fast. Who's reading? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So here's a man for God, right? Keep going. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. 
And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. If only you will listen to me. <laughs> Look, I, you're, the, you're persecuting me. Rise, stand up, get on your feet. I point you a witness, servant witness. I'm sending you control, real control. It's going to get noisy down here. This is our longest class. I never get through this class on time. Too much important stuff. Does God violate our free will when converting us? Quickly, yes or no? Who says yes? He acts upon us against our former desires by giving us a new heart of flesh and taking our dead heart of stone when we don't want him to do this. We do not want him to do this. So yes, in a sense, he violates it. He better. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rule. So yes. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. And no. Who wants to say no? See, this is one of you're, you're good with either answer. He does not violate our free will. After he replaces our heart and makes us alive spiritually, for once we are made alive, he desires, our desires change. He renews our will, and our will then seeks and desires and chooses God. So you get a new heart given to you first. I don't know if I say that. Well, let's read this. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. You must be born again, which is first. Before any decisions, you must have the heart replaced. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The natural person can't come to God or want him or anything because... He's dead, and he needs a spirit. God sovereignly acts first. No man seeks God before God makes him alive with the new spirit. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Nobody. So if he doesn't violate, we are all dead. Arminian, whoever is our... If he doesn't violate and give us that heart without us asking, we are dead. Here comes the noise. He doesn't coerce our will, God changes our heart and our will changes with it. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. 
I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Say aloud. Last one. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Almost made it. All right, Isaac, pray loudly, please. Thank you for listening to Truth in Life. If you enjoy this series, make sure to subscribe. And remember, this is truth to live by.